I'm Olivia Maynard, and welcome to The Domain of Women, a podcast highlighting the stories and ideas of women in the social sciences. Today, I am live in the studio with Dr. Deepa Badrina Rayana, a professor of environmental law here at Chapman University. She is very involved in research and advocacy in the field and has also worked as an advisor for the government of India on new legislation to manage biomedical waste. Thank you for joining me today, Deepa. Would you mind speaking a little bit more about your background and what your research specifically focuses on? Certainly. Good morning, Olivia. It's great to be here. <laughs> and um, yes, so in terms of my uh, background, so I did my um, initial law degree at the National Law School of India University in Bangalore, um, and one of the first in my family to go to a law school. So it's quite an experience. I had no idea what I was getting into, of course. Um, and I certainly did not plan to get into environmental law. I always loved nature. I loved, you know, these issues. But um, the idea was, you're going to go do corporate law and make a lot of money mm. or do something where you actually practice and all of that. Yeah. Um, however, by the time I finished my law school, I tried all of those uh, things, practice, uh, working, um, you know, uh, in-house in a company um, and different types of work. And finally... Um, my uh, former professor called me when I was working in uh, Delhi, and he said, uh, I'm, you know, we're going to start this new World Bank project at the mm -hmm. law school uh, on environmental law capacity building, which was one of the components of a bigger project uh, that was um, you know, launched by the World Bank with the government of India. Yeah. So he said, would you like to come and help us start off? And mm -hmm. uh, so I got involved in actually establishing a center for environmental uh, research, advocacy, wow. uh, and law. Uh, in my former law school, which was very exciting. We had nothing. We had <laughs> no no infrastructure, and it was very exciting times. And we, you know, started the work. And eventually I started getting, you know, a little bit more curious as to what, how environmental law can actually mm -hmm. you know, make an impact, the legal aspect of yeah. it. Because in India and in many developing countries, uh, mm -hmm. there's this dialogue which still continues, which is we need to develop before we can actually talk about regulation and limiting development on the environmental side. So I, I was very curious. I met a couple of uh, professors from different parts of the world, mm -hmm. uh, including my professor Nick Robinson here at Pace Law School, um, which has which has got the number one environmental <laughs> law program in the country. Wow. Um, and he invited me to Singapore, where there was a training, the trainers um, program mm -hmm. run by the United Nations. So I met more people from Asia and other parts of the world and got a very nice um, exposure to the different ways in which uh, law is being mm -hmm. um, considered in the context of environmental protection and regulation. So that led me to apply for a scholarship to come to PACE. Um, and once I got here, um, I really learned a lot, of course, but I said I might <laughs> as well finish my SJD, which is the PhD uh, equivalent in law, so that if I decide to teach back home in India at that point, um, it, you know, you need a PhD to be able to teach and okay, get a yeah, full yeah. professorship. And then I realized this is my home now, and I love being here, uh, you know. And so I ended up staying, but I worked at uh, Columbia Law School uh, wow. for a while. I did a bunch of different things here, uh, including work at the, um, you know, center at Pace um, on environmental law. So uh, I realized this is what I like to do, research, uh -huh. uh, teach, and uh, think deeply about all of these issues. 
And that's the short story long as to my background <laughs> and how and I came to Chapman for a year thinking, you know, this is a visiting position and it yeah. seems like a perfect fit and they basically said, we'll let you do whatever you like to do. And you know, it's been I've never looked back since. <laughs> that's wonderful. So I want to kind of like go way back and uh-huh. so in your childhood when was there a defining moment where you're like, I want to be involved with the environment or were there any attributes of, because you are from India, how has that influenced kind of your, your path? Right. Um, so I never thought about environmental law, mm-hmm. but you know, the environment has always been an integral part of my childhood yeah. and I, I'm beginning to appreciate it more and more now. So for one, I think culturally there's a lot of uh, focus on or used to be, I think it's changed tremendously. Mm-hmm. But the India I grew up in was rather, um, you know, small uh, part of India where everybody knew each other. Yes. Very underdeveloped, and so we had a lot of direct connection with nature. Okay. So we were our community was, you know, built on I think what we would not now permit, you know, a wetland <laughs> area. Yeah. Uh, you know, and a mango grove area. So it was a development that was, uh, uh, you know, planned there, and so. Growing up, there were always snakes in the garden, so it was not <laughs> unusual for us to see a snake. Um, and also because we were in the rural, you know, like adjacent to rural parts of India, uh, there would be people walking bears, you know, that you would have all these performers wow. who would just have bears and walk by in our house. Uh, the lady who supplied milk would bring the buffalo to our house wow. and, and the cow to our house and milk it in the morning, wow. you know, on the way over to different, to the to the we call them the cow shed, but really, you know, back to the farm. <laughs> so early in the morning, you would have this, you know, cow outside your... It's, it's like in the suburb, right? It's not even yeah. in the rural area. In the suburb, and you have this cow in your front yard right next to your window, and she's looking away. Uh, and my mother was terrified of snakes, you know, yeah. rightfully so, because yeah. there were all these cobras, and oh, wow. uh, I know it was not like your garden snakes. <laughs> and my dad insisted they're all garden snakes. And my oh, mom said... No. So I guess what I'm saying is nature was so integral. Like, if I think mm-hmm. back on my childhood memories, uh, you, you, we had, you know, you were playing on a swing, there would be a cobra, you would run inside... We have, you know, uh, memories of my friend's house, you know, where we played. There was this huge cobra. And there's this culture that you cannot kill cobras, that it's bad luck. And you also had a culture that was very visible, where women went on Fridays to go and pray to snake pits. So basically, um, you know, um, anthills where the cobras Mm -hmm. lived. Uh, or the snakes lived, they yeah. would actually offer milk and bananas. Okay. So there was this taboo saying mm-hmm. that you can't kill snakes because they bring bad luck and you... And there's this entire culture of protection to nature that's weaved into the whole culture. So I guess in a way from my childhood that got um, woven into who I am or you know was very integral to my growing up. And my dad was a great uh, fan of conservation. Okay. He was very influential. He would just mm-hmm. walk behind a snake to illustrate you don't have to be afraid of snakes. Wow. So I guess there was not a conscious decision mm-hmm. that I want to protect nature, but I think there was a subconscious love for yeah. nature and a subconscious interest and curiosity for it that evolved. Certainly. Um, yeah, so I would say yeah, nothing specific, but I guess I was surrounded yeah. by it in retrospect. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so can you explain a little bit, like, what exactly environmental law is? Right. So this is a question I wish I could explain clearly, <laughs> but you know I'm still thinking about this. Yeah. But you know I think it's not one thing. I think it's a complex of things. The more I think about it, I think it's a really a question of um, regulating optimally. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, we understand over you know as we live that 
you know, I told my students, you know, think about not having plumbing, right, yeah. your toilet systems. And I think, you know, that kind of puts everything sometimes in perspective that we do need uh, some level of progress and we've achieved a lot um, with the kind of research and uh, innovations mm -hmm. we've made in society. It's made our society much more reasonable and livable yeah. in many ways. And we have also understood nature and the environment much better through our innovations and our ability to have tools and equipment that make us research mm -hmm. in a more effective manner and respond to certain environmental threats and conditions in a reasonable manner. But at the same time, I think we have unleashed, you know, and it's very hard to control in some ways because we've unleashed a level of uh, development, right, that, is, that, is, that has become very hard to control. And I think we moved from a point where we had um, infinite, infinite resources, right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to think about, will we run out of a resource to a point where it's become a very real yeah. problem. We might run out of even uh, water, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's become a very imminent problem. Um, so when I think about environmental law, I think about the role of environmental law as the difficult task of preserving all that's good about progress, innovation, mm -hmm. and at the same time, weeding out the inefficiencies that we have created and trying to see how we can use law in an optimal way. Yeah. Um, so I think in some ways, environmental law, even though it's a separate field, it's actually something that is uh, intertwined with just about everything. Right? Mm -hmm. It's intertwined with constitution, it's intertwined with gender and developments, it's intertwined with um, human rights, uh, criminal law, you talk about it, it's just in everything. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, I would say it's an, on, an all-encompassing field of law yeah. um, that we need to pay closer attention to to solve so many problems we are facing today. Certainly, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much intersectionality in between it. Um, and especially like on this podcast, we talk about all different kinds of social sciences, and so right. it's always ingrained. Um, what is your favorite part about your work? What do you love most about Thinking. I'm thinking? just thinking. I just, that's, you know, and it's strange. You're like, come on, you're lazy. I probably am. <laughs> but I think what, what I mean is, I guess what I love is that it's such a complex problem, yeah. right? It's not, um, it's not just a formula. There's just no formula. Mm -hmm. So I like the complexity it provides us because just from a perspective of uh, looking at it as a problem, you know, yeah. it's so interesting to see this, these various facets. And I, what I like is to think through them carefully and try to understand uh, how it can make me develop as a person because you, uh, we all, I suppose, in some ways have so many preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. And this kind of breaks that down, right? You cannot, I, I, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, there's this preconceived notion that you're from a developed country and so you probably will not care about the environment okay. in the same way if you're from a developed you know, oh, sorry, if you're from a developing country, right, mm -hmm. versus a developed country, and there's this perception sometimes within ourselves, yeah, we need to develop too, because, you know, how will you live if you don't develop and all of those notions? Mm -hmm. But then if you start thinking about the problem in an objective and clear way, and if you start thinking about the rule of law in an objective way, we understand that, you know, this is everyone's problem. Yeah. And I think it makes you grow in ways that I at least did not anticipate mm -hmm. to grow. I also like, you know, the fact that as I teach these, um, you know, various courses on environmental law, my students bring such a rich uh, set of perspectives. And yeah. I learn all the time. So I guess what I like is it's never, 
it's never uh, you know static it's dynamic you're constantly learning yeah that's what I like about it most so in addition to being a professor you've also worked for the government of India can you describe what your role was like and how um, you kind of went about doing that job yeah so my work with the government of India was through the World Bank project okay uh, at my uh, at my law school yeah and that was interesting because um, you know the government of India at that point was we did have you know a bunch of different uh, regulations and laws mm-hmm. most countries did have that yeah. right so but the question was um, you know how do you take certain targeted issues and develop specific kinds of rules. And so my work focused on biomedical waste because at that point, there was a uh, environmental NGOs uh, mainly brought attention to the fact that a lot of uh, medical waste was being recycled mm-hmm. into mattresses, flip-flops, and God oh. knows what are the products. Um, they were reclaimed by uh, you know many of the slum-dwelling kids mm-hmm. and uh, people uh, who were, because the, the hospitals did not really have a methodical way or systematic way of disposing the waste. And perhaps the hospitals up to a point did not have the kind of, uh, you know, um, admissions and uh, people coming in, right, Uh, patients that required a very systematic approach. So I've seen this in some of the old government hospitals uh, as Mm. part of my research where they would just dump things in the backyard and people would be sorting through them um, without gloves or any other safety equipment. So, But at some point, especially I think when um, uh, AIDS became a very big concern Mm -hmm. in the AIDS pandemic, so to speak, uh, more and more attention started, you know, being given to these uh, problems like syringes being reused or touched by children, especially when they're collecting these things, right? And the way, you know, walking barefoot on all of these, you know, in all of these places. Yeah. Um, so um, my work basically, the government started, you know, really paying attention. There's a lot of push to say you need to have mm. a system in place so we cannot have this. So our work as part of the center was then to see what would be the best way to regulate, right? Okay. So it was very pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that part of the work was very pedestrian where we just basically uh, said, how do you define a ways? Uh, is it a good definition? Is there a way in which we can borrow from U.S. laws? So we looked at some of the U.S. laws to see where we can borrow language. So, yeah. And then we gave our feedback on the draft legislation. So it was very, very mm-hmm. pedestrian. We did a similar kind of a thing with the biodiversity law that okay. was also coming up at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, what we did was we went out into communities to advocate for the new legislation, talk mm-hmm. to communities, and got inputs from them. So... It was, a very, it was very interesting to kind of yeah. take the law to the people and from the people back into the paper. Interesting. Yeah. So you kind of touched on how you took some, like, stuff from the U.S. How does, like, the world um, contribute to the field of environmental law as a whole and how, like, do you work with others? Right, right. That's a great question. And I think, you know, um, with environmental law specifically, and I guess with, uh, there are other areas, but with environmental law... Um, to some extent, all countries have the same environmental problem. Mm-hmm. Or same, you know, the typology of the problem doesn't ta- change dramatically in some ways. Yeah. Air pollution is air pollution, yes. right? Water pollution is water pollution. But I think um, what changes, however, is the policy making yeah. given other circumstances. So, for instance, from an objective uh, perspective, you could say X amount is what we need to. What, it should be the allowable amount of let's say, ozone pollution, beyond mm-hmm. which it's detrimental to public health and welfare. Um, and I think globally, in any part of the world, you can agree that, you know, the human uh, body can endure only so much. Lungs are lungs, yeah. right? Um, so in that way, it's very similar. 
uh, in every part of the world. But at the same time, you also realize that, you know, uh, there are other constraints. So how you actually get the law uh, into place and how you implement it are different mm -hmm. in terms of the challenges of ensuring you can actually achieve those goals, right? You, right now you have huge um, uh, problems with pollution in Delhi, for instance. We've seen that in Beijing yeah. earlier. And it's not as if people in Delhi and China won't suffer from this. They'll have mm -hmm. the same kind of lung damage. Uh, but the point is, how do we make sure these governments uh, can do something about the problem? Mm -hmm. Do they have infrastructure, money, um, and other kind of uh, you know, uh, necessary tools to deal with the problem? Yeah. So to answer your question, I'd say, if I look at the, you know, I've, I've also looked at you know, some of the European uh, countries mm -hmm. and how they have dealt with it. What I've realized is the problem is somewhat the same, right? Yeah. There might be some nuances, but because of differences in where we stand economically, for instance, yeah. um, and to some extent maybe <coughs> socially or culturally in terms okay, of our yeah. attitudes, but mostly because of the economic differences, the way law gets made and the way it gets implemented is mm -hmm. very different. But the scientific facts are pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, I kind of want to take a complete Shut. 180. It's going all over the place. Uh -huh. um, so on this podcast, we talk a lot about gender and being what it is to be a woman in the social sciences. Right. So what does your field look like in terms of gender equality? Do you think it's fairly equal? You can talk about law as a whole or environmental law. Just how, what does it look like? Right. So, you know, this is a great question. I'll start by saying... Um, when I began, you know, when I entered this field in my law school, there were there was quite a bit of gender parity, and mm -hmm. by which I mean a good number of the women who went to law schools were, uh, I mean, a good number of students who went to law school were women, yeah. right? Um, and I think you see the same trend quite a bit here too. But okay. the question remains, you know, how many of them get to do what they want to do? Mm. How many of them get into different fields um, and have the same kinds of opportunities? Um, and how many of them stay in the field. And I'd say, from that perspective, talking generally about the law, even though much gain has been made, I think there's still more gains, there, you know, there's still room for gains to be made. Yeah. I think, you know, from my own personal experience, for instance, I never even realized that there are, uh, there's some kind of bias, right, taking place. So I remember, um, you know, going to an interview um, right after I graduated from law school. Um, one, I didn't have the kind of mentoring that I needed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't know, you know, it's not about blaming anyone. It's just identifying that there was something that was not there. Okay. But if it had been there, it might have been much more helpful, right? Mm -hmm. And those uh, gaps might have not been purely gender gaps, but economic gaps and uh, I'd say broadly um, information gaps that could yeah. have been brought in because you don't come from a background where your family has lawyers and who can tell you how things work mm -hmm. and all of those gaps, right? Um, but I also realized I went to an interview in which um, I thought I performed well and, you know, there's a very nice, uh, there was this really nice conversation going on um, and I felt very comfortable because, you know, this person uh, seemed to, you know, it's not just that it's a, it's, it's a person you... Um, who's interviewing, sometimes I think there are other kinds of unconscious ways in which uh, you develop some affinities or yeah. kind of feel comfort. And one of them was, this seems to be a man who spoke the language I spoke, like oh, my okay. mother tongue, right? Um, and so we start speaking, it seemed fine. He tells me, let's go to the second level of interview. And we go to the second level of interview. And then he throws out of the blue this question, so what will happen if you get pregnant? Mm. If you, I said, and, and you know, I was, I was probably 20, 
one twenty two oh. at that point. Yeah, I just graduated yeah. from law school. Um, you know, and I said, to my, I said, well, I'm not married. You know, it's so dumb. I'm like, <laughs> and then I'm like, he's like, but once you get married soon. So there was this perception, yeah. right, especially in most communities in India, uh, especially in those days, that's no longer the case. Mm-hmm. The idea was you would get married by the time you're 22, 23, um, mm-hmm. you know, and soon you'll have children and blah, blah, right? And so he said, what will happen? We'll train you and then you'll get, you know, married and get pregnant. And I realized at that point, you know, now I would probably said you are not supposed to ask that question, right? Yeah. It's not a question you should be asking me, exactly. nor is it a an issue that you should be considering, mm-hmm. you know, legitimately. But but I also realized two things. One was, you know, you do have those kinds of biases. And the fact that he asked me that question, you know, was the first time I realized that such kind of perceptions exist because my father was a big feminist. He never, you know, raised us to think about these biases. Um, so it was a shocker. And mm-hmm. the second thing I realized now is, how would you, if he hadn't asked me, how would I know? that he wouldn't have hired me because he had those concerns. So Mm -hmm. when I when I think about these issues, I think they're still there. Yeah. Um, And over here in the United States, I think there's been a lot of progress as well made in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a concern. I think that's a concern. I suppose it's a concern for all areas. Uh, But I think, you know, from uh, for someone who, who sees, you know, your role as an employer is to just make sure you are not, you know, going away for any of these other reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there are. I, I would say that you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. We made a lot of progress, but I'm not sure we are quite where we should be. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that there's anything that could be done specifically? I mean, it's hard to like fix right. all of these right. problems, but do you think that there's something that would help mitigate? This. Yes, I think you know. I, I, I you know, uh, I certainly do think. I think the laws we have in place are very important. Yeah. Right. And making sure that uh, you know your employer makes uh, and uh, you know a real good faith effort to ensure that these laws are followed and complied with. Right. There's no perfect perfection, but you know to make sure that you know on the employer side there's a good faith effort, and on the employee side too. Right. That there's a good faith um, effort to make sure that you kind of understand that this is not. This is not uh, kind of a free ticket or something, but, you know, to speak up. And I think these, like, different kinds of ways in which the law has intervened, I think, is one really important intervention that we have in place. But I think a lot more needs to happen at the socioeconomic, cultural uh, level as well. Um, I think, you know, it's cyclic in some ways, so we need to start seeing changes in how we model for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and those role models, on the one hand, I think it's not just that, hey, um, mom is going to, you know, work and cook your meal and do the laundry. Mm. You know, your mom is not like, you know, we say like a mother Carly because Carly in <laughs> India has many hands, right? And so it's like not this so Wonder uh, Woman kind of image yeah. um, that we want to promote where, you know, the woman can do everything. Mm. I think the first step is to understand that, you know, uh, a, a woman can actually choose, um, you know, how they want to prioritize, right? Yeah. So if they choose to work um, and they choose to prioritize work, I think um, fr- from a societal perspective, there should be developments where they can kind of uh, unprioritize things yeah. that have traditionally been the domain of women, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's cooking or doing the laundry, I hate doing the laundry. But I think there's a, an equal shift that needs to take place, um, which I think is not happening fast enough, but I think it's happening for certain, for sure, mm-hmm. is not to consider 
uh, or stereotype men either. Yeah. I think the, 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 point, the problem is that even as we think women should progress and grow, we start stereotyping, we continue to stereotype men yeah. and sometimes look down upon men or don't see them in the same light if they're not the successful, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of personality, right? Or if they choose to stay home and do all that work, it's somehow seen as being less, yeah. right? So I think there's got to be a parallel change when where our perception of these roles should be completely, you know, uh, yeah. not gender-driven. And I think that needs to occur on both those levels before mm-hmm. we can see societies because what we will see then is probably children observing that there Definitely. are these different role models, that your children don't get pigeonholed or you know being pressured. And I think that equally I say, at the end of the day, we have to, like I said, it's a choice that we have to give every individual mm-hmm. uh, without kind of judging or prejudging what a man should do, what a woman should do. Yeah. Um, which means a woman should just be a, you know, if the woman likes to do dishes, you know, she should be a lot of dishes. <laughs> but I think it's, what, I guess my, my, my overall point would be that it's not just a legal thing, it's a social, yeah. cultural, economic uh, cycle that needs to also be addressed at the same time. Definitely. Yeah. And I like how you spoke to the double standard because yeah. I think as we like continue to uplift women, we can't just like degrade men just because that they're the opposite because that doesn't make any sense. Right, right. Because we just want no none of those nope those <laughs> stereotype gender roles. <laughs> so every episode, I ask my guest to tell me about a woman in your field that you admire, either a contemporary or someone that you've worked with in the past. Who who's a woman that you admire? Well, that's a good question. I admire so many women in my field, <laughs> and in fact, um, if I think back. Um, uh, I think um, it's uh, women who have been very, very influential in my field. And I think of all the women, if I had to think of one, and I've got so many and such a hard question, <laughs> um, I would say Hari Hosofsky, mm-hmm. uh, who's the dean uh, at Northwestern uh, okay. uh, uh, School of Law. And I admire her because um, she has um, single-mindedly, right, uh, achieved this deanship, pursued this deanship, not so much for the power it brings her, but because of the power it brings her to make positive and meaningful changes. Yeah, She's one of the few people who has consistently, I think, pursued that goal of, you know, using her position to bring meaningful, uh, to make meaningful contribution uh, to the field generally. Mm-hmm but to different um, socioeconomic issues. I think that drives her. Yeah. And I know she's also an, um, a very powerful person um, because she has um, faced some personal challenges, but, you know, overcome them in a really resilient manner. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I had to think of one person, she's been very influential in my pursuing, yeah. you know, this field as well. She's mentored me. So if I had to think of one person, that would be the person. <laughs> that would be her? Yes. Wonderful. I also always ask, like, what are, what's some advice that you would give to a woman entering into your field? So entering into environmental law. Right. So, um, so first question I would say, I, first, you know, advice I would give is um, never, uh, never take no for an answer. Right? Okay. That's the first yeah. advice I would give. It's never take no for an answer. Don't dis or you know dismiss an advice take it mm-hmm. consider it but don't let it define you okay right especially and kind of a, 
a negative uh, response to what you want to do and what you want to achieve. Because uh, at the end of the day, what if you are determined to achieve something in your life, you can. You may have to make compromises. Everybody has to make compromises. You may have to, you know, be willing to take the time, willing to, you know, wait, willing to be patient. Yeah. I would say do all of that, but ask yourself, how passionate am I about this field? Mm-hmm. Is it worth my, you know, my life to yeah. wait, to push? And I would say surround yourself with positive people. You know, people who who don't have to be environmental lawyers, <laughs> right? But people who will uplift you and yeah. give you the encouragement to go achieve what you need to achieve. So I'd say never take no for an answer. Be open to criticism that is valuable mm-hmm. and surround yourself with positivity. Yeah. That is all fantastic advice. Um, so my last question that I'm going to ask you is what what do you want to do in the future? Where do you want to take your research? What goals do you have? Right. This is a great question. Um, so... You know, this year I'm hoping to organize a conference. I've reached out to a bunch of different departments. Um, my greatest hope is that, you know, within Chapman, uh, you know, we can have more conversations. We mm-hmm. have a great, uh, you know, uh, support system in place, to be honest. You know, there's no, you can't do this, right, from the administration. Yeah. Um, we have some excellent faculty, uh, you know, who, who are working uh, in the field and doing mm-hmm. very meaningful work. I think we just haven't found enough um, time, I would say, literally, <laughs> to build those bridges. And I think, yeah. you know, for me personally, I'm hoping I can work harder to build those bridges. Um, and finally, our students. I think, you know, we have a great, great, I think they're our greatest resources, right? Mm-hmm. And my hope is that we can kind of um, get our students to be excited and involved in this particular issue. And I know they are excited and involved, but they just need that channeling. Yeah. Um, and kind of, uh, I'm hoping that I can on my part, do that. And in terms of my research, I'm hoping, you know, um, I think I have a unique um, perspective because Mm -hmm. I come from India. I have lived here probably almost the same amount of time as I've been in India. So it's been a very long time since I've been, uh, since I moved here. So I I think I understand, um, you know, the dynamics of what it means to be a developing country as well as what it means to be a developed country. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm beginning to um, understand that, you know, country is important. Nation defines a lot of who we are. Yeah. Um, it has it has much to offer. But from an environmental perspective, it's not adequate to look at problems only from that perspective because then it uh, kind of obliterates a lot of the other uh, underlying issues. So, for instance... Uh, here in the United States, if you look at United States from the outside, you'd say it's a rich country. Mm-hmm. No doubt GDP is probably mm-hmm. the highest, right? No <laughs> doubt it's a rich country. But doesn't mean there's no poverty. It doesn't mean there are no yeah. um, you know, issues here that people may feel are more important than uh, environmental issues. There are also problems of environmental justice right? Yeah. Um, in, in the United States. Some people not having access to clean water is very much... Mm-hmm. American problem as well. Um, and on the flip side, I also say, uh, coming from a country like India, there are a lot of uh, uh, wealthy people, right? Uh, extremely wealthy people uh, who you could compare to wealthy people anywhere in the world. Um, but what might be different is different is the scale of the problem faced yeah. by the number of people, right? So more people in India might have 
access to clean water problems than people in the United States. But it's not from the perspective of those who don't have those uh, amenities. It's still a problem. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for me, this is an important um, at least maybe others already know this, but for me, this is, this is an important aspect of my research where I'm hoping to see how we can use this kind of knowledge to move uh, forward on difficult issues like climate change. Yeah. Right. How can we center it around, you know, these kinds of justice problems um, and start thinking about um, all of these critical issues, maybe from different frames, pe putting people in the forefront. Yeah. And that's that's where I that's where my focus is. Well, I look forward to seeing what all you do. <laughs> Thank you. So thank you uh, for sitting down with me. That's going to be all for this episode. There will be links to Deepa's work in the show notes below so you can check her out and look at her research. Um, you can find me on Instagram at The Domain of Women or on Twitter at Olivia and Maynor for podcast updates and other upcoming projects. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back next time. Bye. <laughs>